Hello, and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Later on today's show, we'll be talking with Haaretz television critic Adrian Hennigan about the latest adaptations of Israeli television series, with the thriller Suspicion dropping on Apple TV and As We See It on Amazon Prime. We'll find out what Adrian thinks of the English language reboots, and we'll also have a nod to the Israeli Tinder swindler who made his debut on Netflix. But first... I'd like to welcome my guest, Samech Salame, one of Israel's most prominent and important women's rights activists. She's here to talk about a phenomenon that unfortunately is not new, but continues to haunt Israeli life. The issue of violence against women, both as a nationwide problem, but one that disproportionately hits the Arab sector. Samach lives and works in Neve Shalom, Wahadat Salam, where Palestinian and Jewish Israelis live side by side. She's a member of the Board of Governors of the Hebrew University, and she's involved in a long list of social initiatives relating to women's status in society, coexistence and peace, and she speaks and writes widely on these topics. Samach, welcome to Haaretz Weekend. Thank you for having me. So you are uniquely positioned to see this phenomenon in all of its aspects. You manage the Naam Arab Women in the Center Association in Lod, which advances the status of women in the so-called mixed cities and neighborhoods in the center of the country, Ramle, Lod, Jaffa, right? You're quoted in an article that's currently online on Haaretz.com, which is headlined, Mayor of Israeli Arab Town Cancels Unseemly Play About Violence Against Women, describes how the mayor of the Israeli town of Jat canceled the performance of a play dealing with violence against women, quote, not suitable for the values of Islam and Arab society. Can you begin by telling us about this play, Voices? How long has it been around? What the experience of viewing it is like? Well, Aswat is Voices. This okay. is the name of the play. It um, was written by a coalition of uh, women and the director Hisham Sliman collected, actually, stories of uh, Arab women who've been killed by their families in the last decade. And he called me and I contributed to this play one story from Led, from Lod. So talking about three women who were being, being killed recently and what's happened to them. So the voices is the art try, like this is the theater attempt to bring the voice of dead women who were being killed to tell the story and to raise awareness about femicide and killing women in the Arab society. It's a very difficult uh, play, I have to say. I saw it several times. We invited uh, this group of um, amazing players and the production to Lod and to other places. It's not uh, something that easy to watch, to see the truth and to tell the story of three women. And it's painful. Um, I invited uh, to the um, performance in Lod the families. For one mother, it was um, very, very hard to see the story for her daughter, actually, because she recognized that they are talking about her daughter, Dua Abu Sharikh. But she was courage enough to stay there and to speak after the show. This is the main thing, to bring this to our awareness, to speak about it, to have a debate, and to try to prevent the next femicide. So Jat is one of the small towns in the Triangle area, and it was supposed to be um, like next week, the play. And for unknown reason, suddenly the um, group who invited the theater was informed that 
the mayor cancelled the show and um, he posted on Facebook that someone show him a few scenes. He didn't see the, the, the play and the part that he saw was not appropriate and he didn't like it. So is his attitude reflective of what you and other activists come up against when you're trying to get the message about uh, the struggle uh, for you know, against violence against uh, women in Arab society? So we have um, like emergency meeting, Zoom meeting with a coalition of Arab women's association and nonprofit and activists trying to to challenge this uh, decision because women just uh, deserve and men actually deserve to see the, the player and they have to judge like after, including the mayor himself. But what uh, really provoked our emotions and, and was a little bit offensive is that uh, they accused the theater that they disrespect values of religion and um, the tradition conservative approach of the community of Jat. But we have voices from Jat who invited them in. So their voice count also. So they have also the deserve to see it. And he decided that um, this performance of this play can be harmful. It can be hard, like make it, the Islam looks bad. And I didn't know what was he talking about. <laughs> In this play, there is no mention of anything religious. There is one part that one of the victims or the players remove the hijab as an act of freedom, mm-hmm. as an act of future scenario that she wants or something like you know, to express her like freedom and urge to decide what she do with her body. Maybe he's like this part that show him in, in WhatsApp or something like that. So the connection between violence against women and religion is dangerous, I think, because Usually in my lectures and my activities, we bring Islamic quotes and from the Quran, from the Hadith, what the Prophet Muhammad says about like every single word in the Islam is against violence in general and especially against women. So we want to recruit religious people. But this is something about like, oppression, actually. It's, uh, we can't, as a Palestinian, say like, we want freedom, we want spe- to freedom of speech, move, and we want to be equal. This is a democratic state, but we don't want this voice to be heard. This is a contradiction that we as feminists can't stand. So we have to fight back. We try to move this play to next town of Baqa. What's happened there that... Again, the Matnas or the community center director decided by himself that um, he will follow the mayor of Jat because he didn't dare to challenge the decision of this next town. And feminists do not give up. And we are stubborn women. So the next show will be on Zoom. So it will be virtual. <laughs> so maybe even more people will get to see it than Hopefully. would have seen it in, yeah, in real it's, life. It's not that powerful but it's it's not giving up like we cannot give up we consider doing this on the street and i admire the producers to go for this but then i understand that there was threatening against them they show up physically in the town but this is like the end of serial i hope it's the end of serial of bad decisions that was made by men in control, especially in Ram, in Baka, and in Jat, and in Tira, the triangle area. They canceled the marathon, if you remember, the women marathon. They didn't want women to walk in the park, so they go to Kfar Saba or Jewish towns uh, to just to hike and walk 
really. There was cancellation of Omar film in Baka because there was like a hint that it was a kiss or something like that. So the conservative, I think, fundamental agenda of religious people is taking over. And this is the dangerous thing for us. So 2022 hasn't gotten off to a wonderful start for you. The other disturbing news of the week, besides the news about the play, was the attempted murder of Lamis Abulaban, 26-year-old mother of three in Lod, who was attacked and shot. Basically, someone lay in wait for her when she arrived home in her car. She's in stable condition, though, so I will visit her today. And then there was Suhaila Jarushi in Ramle, who was shot to death about uh, two weeks ago. So you know, we're barely in the beginning of the year and, uh, and, and so much tragedy. You established Naam back in 2009. At the time, it was the first feminist nonprofit uh, group uh, in the central area of Israel uh, for Arab women. So that was 13 years ago. You mentioned what sounds like an, an issue of a regression, but can you talk about the changes since then for better and for worse, if there is any better in terms of the extent of the problem of violence against women in the sector and, and the level of awareness and the number of people fighting against it? When we established Naam, AWC, or a woman in the center, some journalist asked me, I think she was from Haaretz, actually, <laughs> Roni Zinger. So, and she asked me, what's my vision? And like, I told her that I'm dreaming about one decade without one femicide, like that we will be a country free from gender-based violence and women killing in the Arab and the Jewish uh, society. Now I'm very modest, like I'm dreaming about one year without <laughs> the crime. With the numbers rising and the stories that been told and picking up, this is a good thing, I think. Now, when I start with this active role fighting gender-based violence in my society, we were very few activists. And I'm talking about the center of Israel and major cities of Ramleled and Jaffa. Naam was the first woman organization in the area, but the feminist movement started many years ago and mainly in the Negev, in the Bedouin sector in the north. But somehow they forgot the center of Israel. And now the statistics say that 40% of gender-based crimes was committed in this area. So it's much more dangerous to be a woman in Led and Ramle than Haifa, for example, or Kufri Yassif or Nazareth. We cannot you know, connect the dots between the organized crime, the Arab society especially. Do you you feel like that that crusade against violence and crime in the Arab sector is helpful to your campaign? Or do you feel like it's a distraction or that it's... I think it's a disaster. because, Because now what we saw in the last 10 years that it's like now if someone wants to kill his ex-wife, for example, he won't do it by himself. He will order their killing mm-hmm. from the organized crime and you gonna pay for it right this is what happened and it's mm. harder to trace the it's, criminal it's much in. harder 80 percent of the criminals are not behind bars this is something that not the same and we can't tell the same numbers about jewish women 60 percent of the femicide made in israel is against arab women so are we are 60 percent of the victims we are 20 percent of the population and if this is not devastating and awful statistics, the numbers again, you know, the accusations and trials and what's happened in the justice system in Israel is, is really, really bad because Arab women are not treated as Jewish women. We know every Jewish killer who killed his wife or ex-girlfriend or partner, but 
I can say that about Arab women. So 80% of the Arab killers are not punished. And this is not good. This is not democratic state. It's not that we are equal in the justice system in Israel. That means that my life is not equal for your life. I fight for equality, a very sophisticated, complicated kind of discrimination against women in terms of when we talk about gender-based violence. So when we started to talk about discrimination, it's not about tradition or religion or conservative society. I'm talking about justice. I'm talking about human rights. I'm talking about right to be equal and that my life is equal for any Jewish woman's life. We changed the terminology. When we start you talk about what we achieved. We start fighting the awful, ugly term of honor killing and that the Israeli police and the Arab patriarchal society, you know, stand behind for many, many years. Judge, forgive or release killers with silly punishments because they consider it cultural thing. Now there is no judge in Israel or Knesset member or journalist to respect himself and he will be accused by being a chauvinist, actually, if he used this term. We can't combine honor with the family, which is like two very important values in the world, not only in the Arab world, and connect it to femicide, to killing a woman. So in the terms of terminology, we make a huge step forward. The number of women who, I'm thinking about Arab women, who complain and go to the police, it was a taboo many years ago. So we can't do that. Women have to suffer inside their families and they are not allowed or to go to the shelter or to ask for external help. Like the family was supposed to help and that was the limit. And the number of women who complain about domestic violence and abuse and threatening doubled itself. So it's in terms of sociology, it's a huge thing. The number of divorced women in the Arab society is so religious people don't like that statistic, but more and more women demand to be released from abused marriages. And this is a sign that they now more aware that they can have partnership, they can be married, and they deserve to be safe. It's wonderful that they're a- feel able and free to complain, but it would be nice if that resulted in some sort of better protection for them. So this is what I'm telling the police officers, that we as a feminist, as a social, I'm social worker, as an activist, we did our job. We raised awareness and we are now trying to protect women and encourage them to speak up and ask for help what you are doing about it. So if we did our job, you are required to do yours. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to release or to accept any less performance than that. Mm -hmm. If someone demands from the social worker to provide and to do her job, I am asking the police also to do his job and the judge and everyone. You're a very passionate fighter and speaker. I've heard you speak at mostly Jewish rallies in which you've got the crowd chanting in Arabic. You work very closely with feminist organizations led by Jewish women in Israel who are also fighting against violence against women. So you kind of have to fight on two fronts. On one hand, you are in this fight against violence. On the other hand, you face on a regular basis a backlash against people in your own community who criticize you for your alliance with Jewish organizations. Can you tell us what you say to them when they say, you know, uh, Israelis are oppressing uh, Palestinian people? How can you work hand in hand with them in this? It depends who's accusing me. Most of the people who are accusing us of collaboration with Jewish organization have 
their own connection with the Jewish partners. The Islamic movement is collaborating with Yahdut Torah and Shas against anything related to feminist issues. So if they have this collaboration and partnership against us as Arab and Jewish women related to child custody, for example, or rising the age of marriage. So what's ultra-Haridi party in the Knesset have to do or have in common with the Islamic party? So why they in like uh, behind the doors collaborating and negotiating and want to put a religious figure in the abortion committees in Israel and they support each other and I'm not allowed to collaborate with Jewish feminist organization. So if they want to accuse me of this collaboration, I have this ticket against them. Okay? There is no any Arab leader in the Israeli society who do not have any connection with Jewish. So they have to check their home first. The second thing is crossing nationality. My feminist sisters in the Arab Jewish sector, the Ethiopian community, the, with the Haredian community, with the secular community, they are my sisters. If, don't, if someone don't like sisters, they are my cousins. So it's good enough. I go with for that. I think when we have this or develop this passion and solidarity, empathy to each other, Spain, we can fight together. I think that shared society organizations should learn from the feminist struggle in Israel. We have our issues. We cannot collaborate with the occupation and oppressing women, our Palestinian women, in the uh, checkpoints. We cannot collaborate with perpetrators like the settlers who oppressed Palestinian women in everywhere in the Palestinian territory. So they are not my partner. But when we are talking about feminist issue, women abuse, oppression of women and gender equality, I am there for them. So my final question is about uh, politics. In the Netanyahu years, there was much criticism uh, from the feminist community about um, his lack of action and taking action uh, when it came to uh, violence against women. How has the government of change performed so far? We've got women in positions of power like Merav Michaeli, who made domestic violence one of her you know, key issues when she was in the opposition. We have uh, the Meretz Party is in the government coalition. Have you been able to see on the ground any kind of shift in the attitude of government support of institutions that help women who are suffering from uh, this phenomenon? Well, I think that like I'm, I'm not kind of this like big fan of this government, but it's different. You know, I can't say that uh, having uh, someone like uh, Mira Regev is the same of having uh, like Mirav Mikhaili. I'm not that naive to compare, about, but we know that there is a difference. I believe in numbers. I believe in actions, not statements. In the level of statements, I know that we have partners. We have people who are aware, Tamar Zanzberg, Michal Rosin, Mirav Mikhaili, Ibtisam Maran, Gaidari now. Iman Iman as well. So we do have people who understand what we are talking about. This is a good step forward. I'm looking for actions. I want to cancel like the Netanyahu's government in 2018 when we declared on the women's strike in Israel and we have this big demonstration. 
they they say that we have five year plan with 250 million shekels for this like we saw that like almost 30 percent of the budget didn't we used maximum 30 percent so I want to see that program. I want to see the money goes to the right people and to women organization to speak and to do something. So we have a window, especially when it's combined to fighting organized crime in the Arab society. And we know that most of the women in the Arab society was killed by a crime organization. We are not in the implementation stage yet, but we do have small, tiny light in the end of this dark tunnel. Well, that's an optimistic note to end the interview. I wish you the best of luck in your continued fight. Thank you so much, Samah, for uh, coming on our show. Thank you for the invitation. To keep talking about this stuff, we need every voice. Coming up next, Haaretz TV critic Adrian Hennigan talks about the global reach of Israeli television. So much streaming television to keep up with. How you doing, Adrian? Your eyes look a little glazed over from all that TV viewing. Oh, that's alcohol. That's okay. <laughs> so I think we've now got this critical mass, right, of Israeli television shows that have not only been translated into English, but kind of like relocated, reculturated. The pioneers were homeland and in treatment. And now the list is long. We've had so many. Your Honor, The Beauty and the Baker, or The Baker and the Beauty. I never remember which order they're in. And that doesn't count even shows like Fauda and Tehran that are aired for global audiences in their original language with subtitles and dubbing. But the most recent examples, a redo into English and a relocation is a show called Suspicion, which hit Apple TV this week. Your article in Haaretz.com is headlined, With Suspicion, a great Israeli TV show gets lost in translation. So tell us, Adrian, what got lost? What didn't is, uh, it's interesting with Suspicion because it's based on the Israeli show Kfulim. Right, Doubles. Doubles. Which and then is they lovely, translated it into False Flag. False Flag, right? which yeah. is, a, is a nice uh, resonance internationally. Um, kind, the first red flag for me, not a false flag, was the, the title of Suspicion, this horribly bland, it could be about anything. Right. And it was interesting because the rights were sold in like 2015 to remake it to Fox, who was showing False Flag basically everywhere. And I think they quickly realized that it's a fantastic Israeli premise. But how do you remake that when nobody else has the same kind of problems? So the premise was sort of just to go over for the listeners um, who haven't seen the original based on an actual real incident, right, in, mm. uh, in Israel. Yeah, very. Well, in, in Dubai, the classic Mossad operation in Dubai in 2010, where they used a lot of real identities of dual nationals for this uh, assassination of a Hamas operative generated a lot of coverage around the world and it was a perfect idea for a TV show mm -hmm. but of course what happened then is I just want to read a quote from the guy Rob Williams who worked who's basically the creator of Suspicion he says we watched the original and we were just like this is great it's such a clear compelling premise then you start looking at it forensically and really it's about the price that has to be paid for security. We just don't live with the same issues. Yeah. So from day one, they were kind of chasing their own tail on this story of it's a very unique Israeli story. Mm -hmm. We're going to remake it. 
how can we replace this giant void now at the heart of it? And they never really answer that question. Right. Or the way they attempt to answer it is just adding lots and lots. I mean, my review used the word embiggen, which unfortunately I can't claim credit for. Someone <laughs> tried to credit me. I can only thank Jebediah Springfield and The Simpsons for that. But it's literally, they throw everything mm-hmm. at the screen with this really convoluted plot that makes no sense whatsoever. And you're like, okay, it actually works when it sticks to the original false flag premise. Right. As soon as it deviates from that and has to create this intrigue and everything that is false about it rings false, unfortunately. You think back to the original prisoners of war getting turned into Homeland, you know, when hmm. the pioneer shows. And in a way, it was good timing because it was post 9-11 America. So you could like keep that sort of tension going in terms of the situation. But when you relocate an assassination of a Hamas operative in Dubai into the kidnapping, possibly murder of the kid of a PR executive hmm. in New York by people who come from Great Britain, somehow it doesn't feel as dangerous right exactly no it it loses the entire sense of being that made the original so good but it's interesting i mean homeland is a fascinating one because that works so well because it took such a part of the premise of the of how to theme and then said actually we need this great character the claire danes character and we need to create the drama through her. Mm-hmm. So it recognized the limitations of right. the show internationally. And Suspicion is billed as being a star vehicle for Uma Thurman, <laughs> who has this tiny little part that doesn't even exist in the Israeli original, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, she is so wasted. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the problem with these things. I mean, A, you make something internationally, and to attract a big name, they need a role. You don't have those same problems in Israel. You know, Leo Raz may be able to dictate that he wants a major role, but generally we don't have a star system here like they do elsewhere to sell shows. Yeah. Do you think maybe some of the same flaws that came out when they relocated sort of the Fauda-like atmosphere into the Netflix show Hit and Run, which was also Leo Raz smoldering all over the place, hmm. that there's some, some similar flaws happened there than in, in, as in the relocation of Suspicion? I liked Hit and Run. I was probably a, a minority yeah. there. But again, it, it's interesting the, the magnet that New York has for these people. Mm-hmm. I'd say Hit and Run struggles whenever it's not in Israel. Yeah. And it kind of loses you know, that unique flavor. That's why I thought it was similar, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then the one <laughs> suspicion doesn't even work in London <laughs> yeah, yeah. for me with its very strange references to Capri's buttons and these really weird... like. Apple is trying to make these international shows, but it roots them in such strange clo- you know, little cultural quirks that mean nothing, not even in Britain, I don't think. But that's their challenge. And of course, if you're under the age of 18, there is only one important remake of an Israeli show, and that's Euphoria. Exactly. It's like the biggest show in America if you're young. So how does that remake stack up to the original? What's really interesting about Euphoria is that it's... I've never seen a show that has such a big budget for eyeliner, but (laughs) you watch the the original, the hot show, and it is so cheap to the extent that you're thinking, oof, oof. I mean, Israeli TV for kids is dirt cheap, but uh, this was kind of like was a crossover, but it was just... It just looked too bad to really almost be watchable. But... The core story of it, basically about euphoria, this high you get, was clearly something that HBO bought. And it was interesting because HBO don't do teen dramas. 
no, they've never really done them. They just don't see it as their audience. But they bought the rights to Euphoria, and Sam Levinson, the creator and son of Barry Levinson, the kind of classic director, he came on board and he basically told them his life story, sort of being an addict from like, the age of 11. And he kind of said at the age of 16, he realized if he kept on taking drugs, it will kill him. And he told them this story. And then they came back to, so do you want to do this? And he was like, so how much do I need to stay true to the Israeli original? And they basically said, you do the thing you just told us about your life story and it'll be great. And that's what they did. And it was. Yeah. Look, doesn't work for me, but it works, <laughs> works for my kids. They yeah. love it. It's the teenage drama that you hate your teenagers watching, basically. Yeah, and that your kids won't let you watch with them. And then over on Amazon Prime, there's a very different show, As We See It, which is an adaptation of a program that was a big hit in Israel on the spectrum. Did that uh, relocation fare any better? For me, it did, because it's. I think there are, there are two ways or there are two types of Israeli show that gets sold overseas. One, which is the most successful, is the one that is rooted in family, that is rooted in the universal, things like On the Spectrum. In Treatment. In Treatment, classic. And of course, all of these shows, what they have in common is they're dirt cheap to make. Mm -hmm. And that was also one of the other things about uh, Kfoulin. When you look at it, it's actually a lot of interviews and interrogation rooms. There's very little you know, money that's needed, and the strength of it is driven through character and the recognition of Israel's limitations as a TV producer. On the spectrum, I actually, funnily enough, I watched them the wrong way around. I watched As We See It first, and then On the Spectrum. I'd read a few things about On the Spectrum, how you know, it's basically the premise is the same of three young autistic roommates who are like sharing an apartment for the first time. They're 25-year-olds, and they all have specific challenges one of them is desperate for a relationship, the girl. That, and uh, one of the boys, he's like the Tom Cruise autistic mm -hmm. character, which, again, some people have criticized. And then there's the third guy who is uh, kind of lovable schlub, I guess, in a way. And they kind of take those characters and they move them to California. So Ramak Gan to California. And it's quite a seamless transition. In the original, the girl works at Aroma. In the American version, she works at an Arby's. Mm -hmm. I think it's charming, but it's interesting because Jason Katims, the creator of the American version, I think his son is indeed 25 and he's autistic. So for him, it was a really personal story that needed to be told. And the difference between the two is that he also used actors who identify who are on the spectrum themselves. I think you can get away with a few things by doing it like that, which I think the original the actors maybe aren't autistic themselves, but the original showcases autism more. Yeah. So in the remake, we get mm. the caregiver is almost like the main character. Right. As her own dramas and will she or won't she stay with these three kids who she loves. You can say what you want about, you know, I mean, we get all the, the Jew face angle here about, you know, authenticity. Yeah. And it's important, but also you can kind of mask a few things by doing that. So I think both work really well. I found both really moving, both really funny. And what's interesting is like there's a French remake coming up as well. Oh, really? Nowadays, I think this is one of the big changes with Israeli television. You know, in the old days, and I guess still to an extent, the Holy Grail is that American remake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where the big money is. That's where all the high profile is. That's where your star ascends and you're suddenly in demand to write your own shows in Hollywood. But 
nowadays it's almost like getting an American version is just the start. So we have this French version called Don Le Trouble, <laughs> which is probably the worst. I apologize for that French. But then you get you know something like Your Honor. Right. Which was a big hit on Showtime. They renewed for a second season. Which really worked, right? Yeah. yeah. Anything, to me, anything that's not military-based has got a far better chance of working if it's Israeli. So there's a reason Fowder never got remade in America, I think. And there's a reason why shows like Your Honor, which is rooted in crime. And corruption, which you've got plenty of in America. Exactly. <laughs> I've got a list somewhere of like all of the countries that are currently making their own version of Your Honor. Mm-hmm. It's like places like France, Spain, Germany, Korea, because Korea is remaking everything at the moment. Italy, it's like a huge list. Now we know it brings us together, corruption. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Corrupt legal system. Mm. So as you've seen, you know, this progress, I was thinking we were talking about uh, on the spectrum that another uh, early Israeli series that was remade was also about autism was Yellow Peppers, mm-hmm. um, which the, the A word, right? Yeah, yeah th- which was made into the A word in Great Britain. So um, you see this evolve. Um, do you think the model for remaking Israeli series has changed over time? I think almost what's changed is Israeli television full stop. So if we look at what are the two most successful Israeli shows of the last 10 years? Maybe Fowder and Stiesel. Mm-hmm. Both of them, the production companies, bought up by overseas, bigger players now. Right. So you get this def- you know, the question now of what is an Israeli show? Will Fowder season four still be Israeli if the money behind it is coming from America? I think Israel was really smart early on as an industry to recognize that there's a global market out there. You go to Spain and one of the biggest quiz shows is crazy thing called Bang, mm-hmm. which was on in Israel during the uh, Gaza war in 2014, an unfortunate juxtaposition. But it's like had over a thousand episodes in Spain. And uh, Israel has become very good at like selling formats across you know, non-scripted and scripted. And just recognized, really, that it's got great ideas, it's got cheap ideas, and there's a big market out there for them. So speaking of cheap ideas, we can't talk about Israel and streaming TV this week without talking about the Tinder swindler. I hate to call it a documentary. I guess it is a documentary. It's like, you know, reality television, (laughs) surreality television, maybe. So you haven't reviewed it on uh, Haaretz.com yet. Not yet. Not yet. Coming up. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think of it? And uh, it's certainly not going to help Israeli men putting themselves out there on Tinder, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, this this has got to be a good thing. And it's interesting because to me, it is like almost like a definitive old school documentary. Yeah, it kind of has all these talking, the, the talking heads with the victims. Mm-hmm. They could have told this story in a real, they could have thrown a lot of money at it and kind of given us all these crazy graphics and all, you know, working into this strange world of Tinder. But actually, they just let the story tell itself. And it's such a horrible, captivating, magnetic story. He builds himself as the Prince of Diamonds, but I think Prince of Darkness might be closer at times. Something like that, yeah. The way he just takes these women for a ride. I mean, it's just, you just can't believe it as you're watching it. And already, I think Netflix is already looking now to make a film or a TV series out of it and 
dramatize yeah. it. So. It sounds like it's uh, set up for that. And the mm-hmm. women have self, you know, that they're so famous, have set up a crowdfunding effort in order to try to get their money back that he, uh, that he stole from them. On, on, I think, just under $70,000 at the moment. <laughs> so they're looking for like 800000 Yeah. Oh, a little yeah, way well, to if go. If everybody who watches it and sympathizes for their plight, you know, gives a dollar, I'm sure they'll soon be in profit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Everyone should uh, go out there and read your fabulous, hilarious, in my opinion, columns on Haaretz.com. Thank you very much. That wraps things up for Haaretz Weekend. Many thanks to my guests, to our producer, Shani Aviram, and to our editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. Until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv. (laughs) 